Hello. On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast. I'm David Osman, and with me again today is Brian Pellegrini of Intertemporal Economics. Our subject for this podcast, US economic policy, teetering on an inflationary equilibrium. The Independent Research Forum promotes a broad range of top quality and differentiated independent research and data providers from around the world, both macro and micro. Many are global, some are country specific, some are sector specific, some stock pickers, all are investment related. The US economy is close to a recession while inflation remains above target. An appropriate fiscal policy response is hampered by a divided Congress. Monetary policy has been tightened, but there may be more to come. In contrast, many market participants expect the Fed to reduce interest rates below current levels in the year ahead. Where do we go from here? What will all this mean for bonds, equities, and the US dollar? To discuss these questions and more, I'm very pleased that we're joined today by Brian Pellegrini, who is the founder of Intertemporal Economics and the firm's senior analyst. Brian founded Intertemporal Economics in 2018. Previously, he worked with Bernard Connolly as a senior analyst at Connolly Insight, where he specialised in geopolitical event risk, monetary policy, labour markets and energy. Prior to Connolly Insight, Brian was employed in various positions across Wall Street, including working with high-growth technology firms raising capital, structuring options trades, and valuing asset-backed securities. Brian has an MBA from Columbia University, a Master of Science in Finance from Northeastern University, and a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science from Columbia University. He is also a CFA charter holder. Intertemporal Economics uses an in-depth analytical framework, which is based on microeconomic foundations. This allows an understanding of endogenous factors and patterns of human behavior that cannot be analyzed using quantitative techniques alone. The firm's research focuses on topics affecting economics, interest rates, and asset prices in developed and emerging markets. Brian, welcome back. Let's start with a short introduction to the advisory service that is provided by Intertemporal Economics. David, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, It's always great coming here and talking to your listeners. My focus is Austrian economics, which is as much a methodology as it is a theoretical framework. So I work very closely with my clients based on my background. Many of them are global macro hedge funds, but uh, a lot of time, a lot of sovereign wealth funds, traditional long only managers, and anyone who wants a a, a clear understanding of what's driving the economics and finance decisions around them benefits from the service. So it's a subscription research service, but then clients are also able to talk to me about specific questions to help them understand the fault lines that are sitting underneath the economy that are not something that traditional quantitative analysis is very good at finding. And so Austrian methodology, which is a heavy focus on the search for causality, not just saying what has happened in the past and then let's make some sort of probability crapshoot. Let's think about why do people do things? Why do they make the decisions that they make? And 
look for examples in the past that are similar. The old saying that history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme is, is very applicable. And so you find situations where a person has been put in a similar situation. And generally, if you have someone who has uh, two, two people with similar sets of incentives and similar circumstances, they're, they're going to choose similar paths. And so that provides a lot of insight into what's going on in the political world and the central banking world which is uh, what we're here to talk about today and, and the, the way that that leads to an inflationary equilibrium. Looking at fiscal policy first, is the recurring debt ceiling problem a potentially serious economic threat or just a matter of partisan political theater? <laughs> well, I think it's a, it's a serious threat that is perhaps you know the equivalent of children going in and playing with dangerous chemicals, right? Not, not fully understanding the danger of what they're playing with, right? And so they don't intend for there to be any accident. And they're saying, well, we'll be careful. Don't worry. It's, it's just daddy's chemicals. And, you know, they could cause market disruptions that the lawmakers simply just don't understand. That being said, it isn't just political theater because of the way that the American government has come to operate, which is to rely very heavily on the administrative state. So because so much of the rule writing and determination of what needs to be done by the government is handled by the executive branch, the legislative authority has diminished over time, right? And so they have become much more just a check writing authority, right? And so as a result, they're reacting to that by saying, well, we want to take back some level of control over government. Clearly, the finances are getting squeezed and not everybody's going to get everything they want. So how are we going to do that? There's limited ways that the legislature can implement its priorities, right? Because they do need to keep the whole government going. So they can't take the time to write in, this is what you need to do on every little detail. So their best weapon is definitely to threaten the president with a complete shutdown. So do they intend to, for that to spill over into the bond markets? No. And I think if, if they had crystal balls, then you wouldn't need to worry, right? Obviously. But uh, the danger is, is that technical factors with the operation of the treasury market could interfere with, or should I say be interfered by, the legislative process. So if there's some sort of treasury refunding on a certain date and the legislatures don't get their job done by that date and there's some sort of problem, how could that affect the banking system? Now, that being said, this inflationary equilibrium that we're in, part of what defines that is that the cost of following the rules for the government, and particularly for the central bank, is too high in unemployment terms. So they say, okay, well, if we're going to follow the rules and tell all the crypto finance, uh, you know, venture capitalists that were depositors at Silicon Valley Bank, laundering their deposits at the bank, if we're going to tell them that it's tough luck, then that has implications for the entire economy. So following the rules in the case of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank would have caused a severe deflationary period as regional bank and small bank credit contracted. So they chose not to follow the rules in that case because the outcome was too scary from a political point of view. And that's, that's the germ 
uh, uh, the, the seed at the middle of an inflationary equilibrium. It's that the cost in an unemployment terms to defeat the inflation, to create the excess capacity in the economy such that a period of growth can take place without inflation rising, right? The cost of producing that ex excess capacity is too large in un unemployment terms. Now, that is not a fixed number, right? That's, this is, the, this is the, the difficulty of economics in the real world, is that people change. People's views on what's an acceptable level of unemployment change. People's views on what the role of government is changes. But in periods where you have a growing level of concern about uh, standards of living, right, you're going to get the government coming in and getting involved. There's too much political pay to be made not to. And as a result, they are going to naturally, the whole basis behind independent central banks is that politicians are biased towards inflation and central bankers, independent central bankers are supposedly not. And that's true. That is undoubtedly true. The problem is, is that the politicians get to pick the central bankers. So most of the time, right, in, in good times, they want to have a conservative central banker to be the adult in the room. But when the cost rises too much, then they start to say, well, I could just pick someone who's a reliable partisan, someone who I can, as the president, I can call up and say, for example, if I'm Richard Nixon, Arthur Burns, and Arthur Burns says, yeah, Dick, whatever you want. And so that's what is the big concern now is that the fiscal fights, if there's a, a, some sort of problem that is leads to disturbance in the treasury market, that, that certainly could be a deflationary bad event. But there's a very good chance that right now, at this time in American politics, that the Fed comes in, or the Fed with the encouragement of the Treasury Department, comes in and says, oh, don't worry, we're going to paper everything over. And that's going to involve printing a lot of money and making sure deposits don't contract and whatever that may be. It's political theater, no doubt, but it could very easily turn into either an inflationary or a deflationary disaster. With respect to monetary policy, if US inflationary pressures continue to ease and central bank policy pivots away from a further tightening this year, will the post-pandemic demand for goods and services cause inflation to re-accelerate next year? Well, I think that's very heavily dependent on how the regulatory uh, authorities approach the macroprudential side of things. So if the central bank monetary side of things says, okay, inflation's coming down very fast, uh, which I expect it to for a brief period. I definitely think there's going to be a, a, a almost scary decline in, in inflation over the next you know, three to six months that won't go back down all the way to where it was. But for that period, the signals coming from the supply chain and the signals coming from measured prices are going to say to the central banks, okay, it's, inflation is, is easing maybe even too fast, it's, it's okay to ease. At that point, the regulatory authorities, their decision on whether to tell banks to go back to lending, everything's fine, you can do your thing, we, we trust you again, or do they say, well, look, we don't want to hear any more bank failures and we're still worried about price pressure, so 
very high standards on credit. We're going to be examining any questionable credits. And, you know, in that case, you could have a reduction in the price of credit without an increase in the availability of credit, right? Now, I don't think that's going to happen in an election year, frankly. I think that the, the, the Treasury Department is much too powerful in terms of its role in regulation uh, for there to not be a political component. So if you get a period of rapidly declining prices that causes the Fed to shy away, and at the same time, a Treasury Department that's in its election cycle, presidential election cycle, decides, you know what, maybe we shouldn't lean on banks, we'll let people get their loans, uh, then I think in that case, you could very, very quickly get a reacceleration of inflation in the late 2023, early 2024 timeframe that doesn't reach, you know, it doesn't mean that you get overnight, it goes to 14% or something like that. But by the time you get to election day in 2024, I definitely think we'll be in the midst of another inflationary cycle. Given the time lags involved in the transmission of monetary policy, would the Fed be best advised to do nothing until it becomes clearer whether their next primary objective should be the prevention of an economic recession or the containment of resurgent price inflation? I do think, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think they're going to... They are going to do nothing because they can't agree on what to do, right? So they're going to say that staying and watching is the is the most prudent option, and they'll get a unanimous vote on it. Even though if there there would not be a majority of people willing to vote for any particular action, so because of its committee, and if you can't get a majority to vote to do something, then the default is to do nothing. That's what they're going to do, but they're going to say they're doing nothing because they're watching. Uh, I think that the reality of the situation is is that the bond market is too messed up, to use a colloquialism there, for the Fed to stand by and do nothing. The yield curve is badly inverted in the middle, right, but then completely flat in the back. So I think that the problems with the functioning of the treasury market, the, the badly inverted yield curve in the middle of the curve, with a completely flat back end is not at all natural. And that's a reflection of the bad distortion from the years and years of massive purchases and now sales. So I think that the Fed has some work to do on the back end of the yield curve so that they can get a proper transmission of monetary policy from the front end to the back end via the banking system, via a functioning banking system that's not in the midst of crisis. So they need to stabilize the treasury market. And the way that they will end up doing that is, is some form of yield curve control. So they've taken many steps towards that. But the last biggest step was the bank term funding uh, facility that allowed the treasury market because it offers financing without any haircut, right? That allows the treasury market to flow to some, whatever the equilibrium is, uh, as if there's no market friction because there's a, a market maker of first resort. So I think that the Fed will start to act as the market maker of first resort in the treasury market increasingly, and they will start to lean on the market, if you will, to push it up, I guess would be the lean up, to try and eliminate the inversion in the yield curve, which would allow them to raise interest rates overall, 
but still allow credit to flow. And that's how they can re- reestablish balance in the economy. A higher yield curve that's properly shaped so that credit flows, but it only flows to places where it is worthwhile. How do you see the U.S. stock market performing in the next 12 months? Uh, well, I think it's going to be a winding path. Whether it ends up up or down, uh, I think it'll be down in real terms, but you certainly could see in nominal terms uh, the price rise. And so I think you're going to get a period of really strong outperformance, especially in the financials in the next three to six months as inflationary fears fall and people start to say, okay, well, that was just a terrible COVID nightmare. It's over now. Back to non-inflationary growth. And that is a period where the low inflation bets are going to be really aggressive. And uh, I think that would be the opportunity to fade that because I think that there's going to be a snapback. And what could be interesting is, is that you could see in flattish performance at the index level because certain industries are getting killed and others are getting rich. So the diesel tanker industry, right, is and uh, could play a role like container ships played in 2022 and 2021. So uh, I think there's going to be volatility, certainly, and a lot of sector divergence in the performance. Are you bullish or bearish about the outlook for the US dollar in the near term and from a longer term perspective? Well, I think in the near term, there's a bit of bearishness because I think that the central banks are going to move towards some sort of coordination on the currency front. I think that the yield curve control in Japan has been shown to be successful enough that the other central banks are going to follow suit, but they're going to not want to start some sort of currency war or a bond market war by distorting each other's bond markets. So they're going to want to do that in a coordinated way. And I think that the general consensus is is that there needs to be more dollar credit outside the United States. And most of the world is having uh, inflationary problems as well. So they're going to want to have some appreciation of their currencies. In the longer term, it really comes down to how the U.S. political establishment is able to meet the two major challenges that are facing the country right now in the near term. And that is, number one, a divided world between the sort of autocratic or global south, as it seems to be getting called, and the quote-unquote Western world, right? So if that turns into an extended contest where the United States doesn't conduct itself well, many of the natural resources are sitting on the other side of the fence. So that would certainly be dollar bearish. And at the same time, the country has a severe problem with demographics and its labor market. There are certainly, there are just not enough workers. So if the political establishment does not do a good job of incentivizing work and getting people to be productive citizens, that would also be a very dollar bearish. So I think that the long term really depends on how the country chooses to deal with the problems that it's facing via this next presidential election, which will give us a big hint. But in the near term, I think that policy intervention by the central banks and via the bond market, via curve manipulation, 
will be what really drives currencies in the, say, five-year time frame. Brian, many thanks for this most interesting insight into the advisory service that is provided by Intertemporal Economics. With more time, it would be interesting to discuss in greater detail your views on the political situation in America ahead of the November 2024 elections. In addition, it would be interesting to hear more about your views on the other economies that you follow closely in Europe and in Asia. The Independent Research Forum is offering a brief trial to the Intertemporal Economic Service and can provide details of how to subscribe to their full service. More information is available from the Independent Research Forum on request. Thank you for listening to this IRF podcast with Brian Pellegrini, the founder of Intertemporal Economics. <music>